So here we go. We've got a lot to do today, and you've chosen to give a Saturday afternoon to study God's Word, so that means I can do things I can't do on Sunday, which is perfect, right? Uh, we, can, we can think, and everybody here is mature enough to hear something they might not have thought of before, right? Oh, good. So we're all open and flexible and non-argumentative. That is such, you know why it's important for that? It's important for a learning environment that all of us are springs and not bricks. Because if you come into a learning environment as a brick, you're, you're going to leave the same, and that, that would be tragic. Even if, um, it's very important too to understand the difference between a sermon and a declaration. This last night, a, a sermon tells you, a, a sermon asks a question and, and should get you to be introspective. It's not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. A sermon is meant to get you to think and change and challenge modes of thought. A declaration tells you what you already believe to be true, and you ought to say amen. And so um, today, I'm coming in the spirit of a sermon. Um, some of what we're going to talk about today has insinuations for what happens after we die. And let me be clear, anyone who tells you they know exactly what happens after you die is full of crapola, okay? They don't know. They've never done it. So, and so we, we're, we're guessing, and really... Um, the insinuations about what happens after you die is not important at all. Um, if I read Jesus correctly, the main focus of Jesus was, why are you waiting for what happens after you die? Why not allow heaven to be established in you right now? Okay? Now, t- t- I want to talk to you about heaven in, in that notion, okay? All right, I'm going to just ask a few questions about it. Was Jesus' main message how to go to heaven? No. Would everybody agree with that? Was Jesus' main message how to go to heaven? No. no. Then why is our main message that? It's a sermon, not a declaration. I'm just asking, why, why is the number one question I get when I travel the world and who's going to hell? As if that's in my pay grade or yours or was anywhere even close to Jesus' primary focus. Jesus is preaching to thousands of people in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't even give an altar call. Hmm. All right, so... Uh, at the beginning of the Bible, what is God doing? He's making a new creation where? On the earth. And whose kingdom is established in the beginning? God's. So everything is submitted to God. So, so in the beginning, God is making a new creation on the earth, and everything is submitted to that. At the end of the Bible, what is God doing? Revelation 21.5, Behold, the Lamb shouts from the throne, I make all things brand new. And there's a new city. Heaven is coming down from God out of heaven and invading earth. So, so at the end of the Bible, who's going to heaven? No one. Whatever is in heaven is coming down. Now, this is not a denial of heaven. I mean, heaven is a, is a wonderful truth because if heaven's not true, then death wins. And that would be terrible. But, but the, the goal isn't to get to heaven. The goal is, is, is whatever is in heaven is coming down. So when Jesus framed thoughts on heaven, his thoughts on heaven were, hey, what I'm describing to you is coming to the earth at some point, and that is a blessed hope. And my invitation is that you establish that in your heart now so that if it happened tomorrow, you'd be ready. There was this urgency of Jesus' teaching. He tells stories about virgins not being ready. And there, there, was, this, there was this urgency. And the, and the point of the virgins not being ready is not, well, some are in or some are out. It's, it's no, it's, it's, there's certain people who take establishing the kingdom seriously and urgently. And then there's other people who always say, well, I'll get to it later. And they never do. 
And then they find themselves on the outs in the kingdom, and it's not because they weren't in, it's just because they weren't ready. So, so at the beginning of the Bible, Jesus, I mean, when the beginning of the Bible, God's talking about making a new creation on the earth. At the end of the Bible, God's talking about making a new creation on the earth. And everything in the middle of the Bible is about God making a bunch of new creations on the earth to prepare the earth for the new creation coming to the earth. So the beginning of the Bible is about what God's doing on earth. The end of the Bible is about what God's doing on earth. And everything in the middle of the Bible is about what God's doing on earth. And yet somehow our message became, how do you go somewhere else? The, the, how did that happen? The, the, the point of Christianity was never, hey, let's get a bunch of people to be like us so one day they'll go to heaven. The point of Christianity was to establish the kingdom of heaven in every place we see hell right now. That God wanted to multiply himself through a body to establish a kingdom on this earth to prepare the earth for the kingdom coming to the earth. The, 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 question, the, the best question may not be, will you go to heaven when you die? The best question might be, if heaven invaded your life tomorrow, what parts of you would survive and what parts of you would be burned up? I started getting fascinated by this from one question. Uh, an, uh, an older friend of mine, he's a pastor, he asked me if, if I reckoned I would enjoy heaven. And I said, well, of course I'm going to enjoy heaven. You can't stuff heaven up, right? And he said, well, I'm not so sure for myself. He said, um, I, I, the Holy Spirit's challenged me to do something that's changed my life forever. He said, I'd like to challenge you to do it. I said, Sure. He said, go back and reread everything Jesus said about heaven and ask yourself if you would enjoy it. And be honest. Be honest. Read Jesus' descriptions of heaven and then ask yourself if you would enjoy it. For instance, Jesus said, in heaven, all the secret conversations of your heart will be revealed for all to see. Are you ready for that? Jesus said, heaven is a table with every tribe, tongue, and race. So if you're a racist, are you ready for that? J Jesus said that in heaven, what you used, that what God gave you that you used to change this world will be celebrated and multiplied, but what you buried will be uprooted and given to someone else. Are you ready for that? What, what are you doing with what God gave you? And if that happened tomorrow, what would be buried and what would be celebrated? Here's, here's a good one. Jesus said that in heaven, whether you started working at 6 a.m. or at 5 p.m., you get the same wage. Are you okay with that? I realized I wasn't. I started looking at these descriptions of heaven, and I asked myself the question, if this happened to me tomorrow, would I be okay? Because Jesus' invitation was not be a certain way in order to go somewhere. Jesus' invitation was allow what's somewhere else to be established in you right now. And so if there's something he's describing that's going on in heaven that I'm not okay with, then there's a problem in my heart today. I realize that central to discipleship and becoming a follower of Jesus is not just believing the right things, and it's not just doing the right motions. It's actually participating with him to establish the kingdom on the earth, to prepare the earth for the new kingdom coming to the earth. See, there are six, depending on your translation. Well, let me ask you this. How many mentions are there of fire and hell in the whole Bible? Depending on your translation, somewhere between zero and six. Okay, let's go with the mean one. Let's go six, okay? All right, so six. Let's go with that one. So there's six mentions of fire and hell in the Bible. How many mentions are there of fire in heaven? 229. So how many sermons have you ever heard on fire and hell? Lots. 
How many sermons have you heard on fire in heaven? None. How did we do that? How did we pull off something that's emphasized 229 times versus six? How did we emphasize the six over the 229? How did we do that? Of course, we do it with a lot of things. There's four verses in the Bible that say homosexuality is wrong. There's 2,000 verses in the Bible that tell us to love each other. And so we, uh, it's okay for me to hate because they're different and it's wrong. And it's a wait a wait a wait a minute. Hate. God doesn't love them. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe we've got our emphasis wrong. 229 mentions of fire in heaven, six mentions of fire in hell. So, if your main goal in eternity is to avoid fire, <laughs> maybe hell's your better choice. <laughs> hell will let you stay greedy. Heaven won't. Hell will let you stay racist. Heaven won't. There's lots of fire in heaven. You start, if you start thinking, if this group was smaller today, I would do this rabbinically. And I would say, somebody, t- somebody tell me of a scripture that talks about fire in heaven. And because there's so many of them, st- stuff would start going off. But the main one that, I, that come to my mind immediately is uh, 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about if any person builds their foundation on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's a saved person, correct? If any person builds their foundation on the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they use wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, costly stones, they're still on the foundation of Jesus. I like that. In other words, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, if your foundation is Jesus, it's the same, right? And then he says, no matter what you use to build your house... In that day, it will be revealed with fire. Hang on a second. Are we talking about saved people here? Yes. Are we talking about fire? Yes. Fire and saved people? Do that, does that go together? Yes. <laughs> it says that day will reveal it with fire. And what the builder built that can remain in God's kingdom will be celebrated. But what he built that cannot remain in God's kingdom, it will be burned up. The builder himself will be saved, yet only as one escaping through the flames of heaven. Hmm. So here's my question. If you entered into heaven today, what parts of you would survive and what parts of you would be burned up? I'm talking to, I'm talking to people who've given their Saturday to study God's word, right? I don't need to lead you to the Lord, right? Right? So now that, now that, you're, now that you're like forgiven and in, my question is now that you're in, what on your life will last? The, the question isn't, are you going to go to heaven? It's, obviously, it's obvious the builder's saved, and he's saved to the end. It's, it's not that the builder's not saved. He himself is saved, yet is only one escaping through the flames of heaven. Dallas Willard, the great Christian philosopher, calls that passage the flames of heaven. One rabbi says it this way, that the flames of heaven is God's relentless pursuit to make you the best you can be in his kingdom without taking your free will away. The, the, the invitation of Jesus and the epistle writers is this. Whatever's on your life right now that cannot exist in heaven, I urge you to go ahead and get it off your life now. It, it might help you to understand that in the New Testament, the word translated judgment, when I say judgment, what images come to your mind immediately? A guy, normally a white guy, in a black robe with a wig correct? And he's got a gavel and he's pronouncing people guilty or not guilty. Is that not the image we get when I say the judgment is past, right? 
It, does, does it help, though, to look at how they... Anytime you're reading any piece of literature, you have to ask yourself three questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? How would they have taken it at the time? Was that the image of judgment in the ancient Hebrew culture? The word translated judgment? No. The word translated judgment, and you guys will understand this because of your demographics here. The word translated judgment in the New Testament is actually an apple farming term that means to prune an apple tree in order to cr- increase fruitfulness. The word is colossus. I actually talked to, to uh, Bryden about this. I said, what, how do you do this? He said, well, in December, you got, a, you got three times as many apples. You've got, like, all these small apples. And, and, and you might think, well, if you leave them all there, you'll have three times as many apples. But if you do that, there's not enough nutrients in the tree to make proper-sized apples. So you would have three times as many apples, but no one would buy them. They'd be this big, and they'd be soft. So what you do is you cut the excess apples off, and it drives the, the nutrients in the tree to the rest of the apples, which gives us proper-sized apples that we eat. That is the word colossus. So in the ancient world, when the word colossus was used, they didn't think of a, white, a, a black robe wearing judge with a white wig and a gavel. They thought of a farmer with pruning shears. What's on you that is, is hurting you? And I'm going to cut that off. Think about how Jesus talks about judgment. He says, in that day, I will sit as a vine dresser and you're the vine. And whatever branches on you are not bearing good fruit, I'll cut them off. I'll cut them off. In other words, I'm, I'm going to look at your life. And whatever's on your life that's hurting you, I'm, I'm going to prune it. So, so think about the scripture Jesus said. Prune, he says, in English, it says, judge yourself here so you won't be judged there. A better way to say it would be prune yourself here so you can avoid pruning there. In, in, in other words, whatever's on your life that can't exist in God's good world, go ahead and get it off now. That way you avoid God pruning it off of you anyway. That for followers of Jesus, our goal should not, our end goal should not be to be forgiven. It's sort of like, whew, I'm forgiven. I'll just sit around and wait to go to heaven. That is the exact opposite of Jesus' message. Jesus' message for his followers is this. Get in line with God's kingdom today as fast as you can, urgently. I urge you to do this. The whole world's at stake. Come on, people. Come on. We need to establish the kingdom of God on this earth. No one ever, you never see any of Jesus' followers going, oh, great, you're here. We get to go to heaven now. <laughs> Never. Jesus rose, Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he came back from the dead. And how much did he talk about heaven? None. How much did he talk about hell? None. That is amazing considering he just preached there. I find that amazing. What I find more amazing is no one asked him. Jesus come back from the dead, and no one said, no one, no one asked him. If if I, you guys know me, if I died today. And you came to my funeral on Wednesday, and then I showed up here next Sunday and ruined your service? If I walked in the back and said, oh my God, Shane Willard's here. I know I went to his funeral. Come, Shane, come, get him a mic, for goodness sake. So give him a mic. He said, we're going to have question and answer time. He's back from the dead. How, how, many, how many questions would we get through before someone asked what actually happened? No one did that, though. Jesus comes back from the dead, and no one says, hey, what's heaven like? What's hell like? I heard you preach there. How was your altar call? How did that go? When you rose from the dead, it says tombs emptied up everywhere. Was that your altar call? Did you clean out hell, you rascal, you? That is something else. Are you going to write a book about your 23 minutes there and make a billion dollars? That would be awesome if you did that. No. No, no one did that. Here's Jesus comes back from the dead, and this is their response. Oh, great. You're back. Are we going to take over Rome now? That's an odd response. Unless they thought he was about establishing the kingdom on the earth. 
Jesus is not about getting a whole group of people somewhere else. Jesus is about taking what's somewhere else and getting it to the earth. And he's entrusting us to do that. So here's my question. If that happened tomorrow, where would you fit? You say, well, I'm forgiven. Good. Good. Yes. Amen. But then what? Then what? How, how would you go with the flames of heaven? If you're the builder, what part of your life would suffer loss and what part of you would be celebrated? By the way, that's a question, not a statement. I, I'm not looking for you to agree with me. I'm just asking the question. There's all these images everywhere. Malachi chapter 2 says, And who can stand the day of his coming? Who can stand in the day of the Lord? For he will purify his people with a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. By the way, these are metaphors. God is not literally setting people on fire. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus, he commands his people not to do it. So if he commands his people not to set people on fire, does it stand to reason he would keep his own rules? God is not a 10-year-old boy with a lighter, a magnifying glass, and daddy issues. The, the, the word, I because I white people are weird. You, you start talking about flames in heaven, people go, well, well, well I don't want to go there. I don't want to be set on fire. That would hurt. No, God, God, God's, what, what? Like, really? No, come on. The, 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 word, the word translated fire is the word pure, P-U-R, pure. All, all forms of the word purity come from this word. It essentially, it's what the rabbi said. I can't do any better than him. That the flames of heaven is God's relentless pursuit to make you the best you can be in God's kingdom without taking your free will away. In, in other words, what, 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 there's all these images. Malachi chapter 2, the refiner's fire. In Jeremiah, he says that he will complete you like a potter does a clay pot. Hang on. How does a potter finish a clay pot? Fires it up. Mm. Obviously a metaphor for none of you look like a pot. <laughs> Isaiah 42, he says, I will consume them with my fire, yet they will not understand it. Once again, obviously a metaphor. If you douse someone with gasoline and set them on fire, the, the main concern should never be, do they get what you're saying? <laughs> These are metaphors euphemisms, analogies. So I started looking at this. And I wanted to be brave enough in my own life to be a disciple. And I knew that if I was going to be a disciple, I had to be willing to allow heaven to be established in me today. So I was, and if you're not willing to ask this question, it's okay, I don't think any less of you. I just have found that this has really changed my life, so I want to share it with you. And that is this. Where are you allowing heaven to be established in you today, and where are you resisting it? Okay? And only you know the answer to that. But I'm going to share the one I had the biggest problem with. Okay? Like, I looked at, I looked at a situation, and I, and I was actually honest enough to ask myself this question, and then I asked my four closest friends, was this true about me, because they'll be honest. And I asked my four closest friends, would I sit down at a table with every tribe, tongue, and race without having racist thoughts? And they all told me, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 you could do that. And I felt like I could. I said, if I entered into an environment where I had to be honest and genuine, w- would I be okay? They said, Shane, we feel like you'd be okay. And I, f- I felt like I'd be okay. I got things to work out there, but I, I-, I feel like I'd be okay. And, and-, and then I said, well, what about, what about if-, 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 if account was taken on to ha- how I was using what God gave me? What-, what do you reckon? I feel like my ratio, it could get better, but I feel like I'm on the right track. How do you feel? And they said, oh, yeah, 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 you'd be okay. But when I got to this one, I didn't even have to ask them. <laughs> so I want to share that one with you because if it bothered me this bad, I'm sure there, it would bother you. 
And, um, and, and, and let's just see where we stand with this. This is Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to look at something Jesus said, okay? This is what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It's full of imagery that I'll go through here in a second, okay? And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy? Now, if you're taking notes, you want to note that phrase, who is worthy? The question I want to ask in this session is, are you worthy? Are you worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? But no one in heaven, so there's people already in heaven who aren't worthy, no one on earth, nor under the earth. That pretty much covers it, right? No one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. Now, let, let, me, let me walk you through some history here, okay? Who, somebody with some confidence, tell me who wrote the book of Revelation? John. Uh, uh, who was ruling the world when John wrote the book of Revelation? Roman. Roman Empire is ruling the world. Now, look at this first verse. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Hang on. Who was sitting on the throne when John wrote the book of Revelation? Domitian, okay? Domi- in real life. Yeah, no, Domitian was sitting on, Domitian was the emperor who put John on the island of Patmos, which, by the way, let's just walk through this, because we're here for the afternoon, we may as well have some fun, okay? Um, Domitian was famous for something in the Roman Empire. He said he was the son of God, which was nothing new, because all the Caesars said they were the son of God. But the center of the Roman Empire at his time was a place in Ephesus called the Agora, A-G-O-R-A, the Agora. The Agora was the center of mercantilism for the entire empire. Anybody who was coming from the east, from India, they could come to the Agora and meet with people from Spain, and they would come together, buy and sell, and then go back to their hometown. So this was the center of mercantilism. So, so the advisors to Domitian said, um, you ought to take advantage of this, and you ought to put a special tax in the Agora. Domitian resisted this idea, and he said, no, I'll lose my popularity with the people, but here's what I'll do. I'll make them give an offering to me as the Son of God for the divine privilege of having me be their leader. And he proved his Son of Godness by entering into Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was this huge place where all the gods were with big columns and stuff. And what he did was he put a ceiling on top of the gods. And then on top of the ceiling, he built a statue of himself over the top of the gods. And he said, this is obvious that I'm God because the gods didn't stop me from doing this. And I'm not only God, I'm the greatest God. He put himself over all the gods. And so in Ephesus and in the Agora, whether you were coming by land from the east or by sea from the west, the first person you saw was the statue of Domitian. So the Jews called him the beast who comes from land and sea. In one sect in in Jerusalem, they called him the dragon. But in most places, they called him the beast who comes from land and sea. So he set up ecclesias, churches. He set up ecclesias, and, and he's poking fun at the Jews. What he did was he had his mighty deeds inscribed on stone tablets and hung in the churches. Well, hang on. If you're a Jew, what was written on stone tablets that's very important to you? The Ten Commandments. In other words, he's like, oh, you got your stone tablets, I've got mine. And mine are more visible than yours. Yours is in a crate buried somewhere, no one can find it. How about this? 
stick that in your pipe and smoke it, right? And so he put, he put his um, mighty deeds on these stone tablets, and he had his underlings there. And the rule was that before you could buy and sell in the Agora, you had to come make an offering to Domitian as the Son of God, just for the divine privilege of having the Son of God rule over you. The problem was, how did you enforce it? How did you know who had given their offering and who didn't? So he had his underlings there, and if you gave your offering to Domitian, you were given a mark in your forehead or in your forehand, and that told the people in the Agora that you could now buy and sell. So in 85 AD, in, in Ephesus in the Agora, what did you have to have on your forehead or your forehand in order to buy and sell? You had to have the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. So these guys, oh, by the way, you want to hear more of this? Pretty cool, right? Because this Domitian was a narcissist, and obviously he built a statue of himself over the top of the gods. And so every year he had something called the Domitian Games, right? Which is very creatively titled to honor him. So the Domitian Games took place in the Roman Colosseum, and the Roman Empire was divided into 12 regions. Have you guys ever seen the Hunger Games? It's ex- it's, if you've seen it, it's exactly that, okay? Where you had 12 regions sitting in a big Colosseum, and he would stand. Think about the language of Revelation. He would stand before the Roman Colosseum, and he would make region one stand up, and he would say, this I have for you, but this I have against you. And this I have for you, and this I have against you. When you walked into the Colosseum, you were given a white robe and golden crowns in order to make a giant, massive choir to sing the praises of Domitian. And they would sing the same hymn every year at the Domitian Games. Worthy are you, O Domitian, O Son of God. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and riches and blessing. Worthy are you, O Domitian, O Son of God. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and riches and blessing. And they would stand and they would sing this song to honor Domitian, and they would cast down their golden crowns around the feet of Domitian. Think about any movie you've ever seen about Roman empires. When the Caesar is standing in the Colosseum, what's happening? People are throwing gifts at his feet. Then the Domitian games would happen, and there was all this death and carnage and hatred and terror. And the way the Domitian games ended was the people would stand and they would sing another song. Worthy are you, O Domitian, O Son of God, you who are worthy of honor and glory and riches and thanks. And the final character of the Domitian games would come out, and his job was to clean up all the dead bodies, and his name was Hell, Hades. Hades. And so think about Revelation chapter 4, and I saw the new kingdom, and Jesus is sitting on the throne. Not Domitian. Jesus is sitting on the throne, and we're all wearing white robes, and we're casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea, and we will sing to him a new song. In other words, the revelation that John has of heaven is that Domitian's not in charge. Jesus is. It was hope for the oppressed. It was like there's, there's a new day coming. So Domitian, think about, think about when you see ancient pictures of Caesars, what are they always holding in their hands? Scrolls, scrolls, here was the rule. They would have scribes follow them around, and they would write their mighty deeds in these scrolls, and they would seal the scrolls. And in order to read about the mighty deeds of Caesar, you had to be deemed worthy by Caesar to open the seal. You had to be open. So, so, so John's taking a jab at Caesar here. He's saying, then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. In other words, your guy's good enough to fill up one side of a scroll. Our guy is so awesome it takes both sides. 
And it's sealed with seven seals. And then he does something that's very common to the Roman Empire. He says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to get close to this king, in other words? Who is close enough to know him? Watch what the answer is. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. So, in John's initial revelation of heaven, who makes it? Nobody. Nobody. In his initial revelation of heaven, he doesn't think anybody's going to make it. And watch his response. Watch. So I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside of it. So hang on. So John's initial response to knowing that no one was going to make it was that he wept. Let me, let me speak frankly to you. As Christians and followers of Jesus, okay, if we ever think about someone not making it and we lose our ability to weep over it, we've missed the point. If we ever come across like, oh yeah, they're not going to make it and good on them, God can get them, that is not the point. When John thought no one was going to make it, he wept and he wept. Here's my question. Have you lost your weep? Have you lost, have you lost your passion for the lost? Have you taken sort of a, eh, whatever? And then underneath all that, there's this elitism that makes this nauseating. But let's keep reading. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Any presentation of the gospel that does not end with God getting what he wants is not the gospel. Jesus gets what he wants. He wins. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, Let's take a look at this, all right? Questions that we need to ask ourselves. One, if the kingdom of heaven invaded your life today, what part of you would survive and what part would be burned up? Two, if you walked into heaven today, would you recognize it as heaven or would you think it was hell? All right? Three, are, are Jesus' descriptions of the kingdom of heaven congruent with your life? Where would your life struggle to live in that environment today? This is all what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship has nothing to do with, well, I believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus only qualifies you to be a demon with flesh on. No, no. It's are you living it? Are, are you establishing that that's a disciple? A disciple is someone actively participating with God to establish his kingdom on the earth. So, so here are some questions we need to ask. Maybe the better question is this. What pruning needs to take place in your life now so that the kingdom can be established in you today? In other words, what's holding you back? Where is heaven not already established in your heart? Now, with that as the backdrop, this is the one that bothered me the most. I looked at everything Jesus said about heaven, and I realized that I had darkness in my heart on this topic. I realized there was a black spot in there as big as Australia that I, I, I could not get away from it. And it actually, once I was brave enough to look at it with the Holy Spirit, I realized how sick I was making myself. This was nauseating to me. Now, when we look at Jesus' um, descriptions of heaven, all sense of worthiness will be burned up. In other words, if there's anything in you that thinks you deserve heaven more than the other person, then it, that's going to get burned off of you. That's going to get burned off of you. Now, this, this is how he describes um, heaven. This is how he describes heaven. Let's, let's check this out. All right? For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. 
and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard, okay? So it's early in the morning, let's say sunrise, 6 a.m., and he agrees to pay this group of people one denarius to work in his vineyard for a day. In those days, one denarius was considered a fair day's pay, okay? So he's being fair. He says, at about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said, you also go work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went out, and he went out again at noon, and about three in the afternoon did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and still found others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. So you following the story. Six, nine, twelve, three, and five. He is hiring people. The first people, he said, I'll give you a denarius. Then as he hired more people, he doesn't tell them what their pay is. He just says, I'll pay you whatever's right. And so the assumption is that if a denarius is a whole day's pay, then there would be a sliding scale. All right? Watch what happens. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Hang on. If you were the first one hired, how do you feel about that? He's paying, he's paying the people who only worked an hour before he pays you. You would hate that, right? Can I, I mean, can I get an amen on that? Like we're all in the same boat there, all right? And then, but then you'd rationalize it and you'd say, well, that makes sense because he's going to pay them less. It's easier to work out their pay. So he's going to pay them less. Watch what happens. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each one received a denarius. Oh, wait a minute. A denarius is what the people who agreed to work all day are going to be paid, right? So if you'd work from six in the morning till night and you saw someone who only worked an hour get paid a denarius, what is your assumption? Your assumption you're going to get more. Well, if they got a denarius and I work 12 times more, there must be 12 denariuses coming my way, right? Watch, watch, watch. it doesn't work that way. Watch what happens. So when, those, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, right? Duh, right? But each one, all of, each one of them also received a denarius. Oh, oh. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, as you do. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the work of the heat of the day. So in this story, followers of the landowner are angry with the landowner because he pays people who does less work the same wage as he paid them. Ooh. And I knew I wasn't okay with this. I was just like these people. Like I feel like I've worked hard for God. Traveled 170,000 miles last year. Spoke in 13 countries. Last year, they had to do surgery on my legs because the blood was pooling in my feet because I was sitting in economy class too much without proper hosing. So the blood, my feet were turning colors. They had to do a $12,000 surgery on my feet in order to reroute the blood in my feet to get back up to my heart properly. And you taught Sunday school. Ooh. Oh, you work in the parking lot. Ooh. You come to church twice a month. Oh. And I realized that there was something in me that really believed that I deserved more of heaven than you because I was working harder than you. And that is a horrifically dark spot that I knew I had to deal with. I knew that I was the same as these guys. How about you? Is there anybody that you can think of right now that you believe you deserve heaven more than them? 
<laughs> what if they're not like you? Is, is, there, well, is there any group of people that you think you deserve heaven more than them? See, in heaven, no one's worthy. So everybody's there by grace. So if we start comparing who's better, we're just comparing levels of unworthiness, and that's just silly. <laughs> Is, is, this, is this getting to anybody yet? <laughs> Are we dealing with something here? Check, check this out. Check this out. But he answered one of them and said, Am I not being fair to you, friend? Like, Jesus isn't mad at him. He's like, You're my friend. I, I don't understand your complaint, though. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? It's like, it's like he's confused. He's like, Look, I... Um, I don't understand. You said you'd work for a denarius, and I gave you a denarius, and now you're upset. I, what, what's, what's the matter? <laughs> and, and what's the obvious answer? Well, you paid them more. And Jesus is like, watch what happens. He says, take your pay and go. I, is it, I, listen, I love this. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. <laughs> In other words, why are you paying them more than us? Just because I want to. Why are you paying them the same as us? We've borne all the work in the heat of the day. Why are you doing that? I just, I just feel like it. And in true, in other words, sometimes God doesn't have to explain himself. We love for God to explain himself, but we have to own the fact that sometimes he just won't. God, why did you give someone with that much character flaw with so much gifting? I just wanted to. I just want. Why are you paying them the same as us? Just felt like it. Watch, watch what he does. And in true rabbinical style, he ends this story with two questions that are so relevant to us. One, don't I have the right to do with what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? In other words, Jesus says, I can only see two conclusions here. You have a problem that I paid someone that you think works less than you. I'm giving them the same wages I'm giving you. <clears throat> and you have a problem with that. And the only possible reason that you have a problem with that is that you're, you really don't believe I could do what I want to do. And if that's not your problem, then you're envious because I'm generous. Need I remind you that none of you were worthy to work for me to begin with. So whatever you got was by grace anyhow. So, let's deal with these two questions. One, can God do what he likes, or does he have to run it by you first? Be careful. I'm good at this. Can God do what he likes or does he have to run it by you first? He could, can I get an amen that he could do what he likes at least? All right, we're all right. So God could do it. So, so, so your problem isn't that God can't do what he wants. Although I think you might have a problem with lots of what Jesus did. I'm convinced no Christian today would have followed Jesus back in his day. He was too radical. I'll, let me, I'll give you a couple examples. Like, there's this one time um, where there's this prostitute, and Jesus is speaking to her. Problem one. Jesus is talking to this prostitute, and this prostitute is so moved by the compassion of Jesus that she kneels down and washes his feet with her hair. Remember the story? And what does Jesus say to her? Your sins are forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? She, she didn't pray the prayer. She didn't ask Jesus in her heart. She didn't believe in her heart and confess with her mouth. Jesus forgives her sin. Is he allowed? 
And what if you had been there and he asked your advice? What would you have said? What if he had turned to you and this lady's washing his feet? What, what, would have, what, what would have happened if he would have turned to you and he would have said, man, what do you reckon I do with her? You go, I don't know, Jesus. What do you reckon? I think I'm going to forgive all of her sins. Would you have said, well, Jesus, it's your world. Do what you like. Or would you be the person giving Jesus all the scriptures as to why he can't forgive her without a sacrifice or a sinner's prayer or something else? Because if you're number two, you're annoying. <laughs> right? Can Jesus not do what he likes? Is he allowed to forgive someone's sin because she washed his feet with her hair? Is he allowed? Because he did. Or is he a heretic? Right? And aren't you glad that's not the rule? Right? Like, can, can you imagine meeting her one day, sir, and her, her saying, hey, how did you meet the risen Christ? You said, oh, I came to Bay City Outreach Center, and God moved on my heart. And at the end of the service, the pastor gave me an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus in my heart, and it changed my life forever. It's the greatest thing I ever did, ever. How would you feel if she looked at you and went, what? You didn't wash his feet with your hair? <laughs> oh, no. I'm in. You're out. I'm right. You're wrong. I mean, with all respect to you and you and you and you and you and you and most definitely you and you. Yes, and you. With all respect to all of you, for you to wash his feet with your hair, you'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. <laughs> Is Jesus allowed? Hey, like there's this one time Jesus has this encounter with this guy in a tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, I think I want to eat with you. And Zacchaeus is so moved with the compassion of Jesus that it said, he says, look, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus says, that's it. Salvation has come to your house. Woo! Is Jesus allowed? <laughs> he hadn't done anything except for to express that he was going to give half what he had to the poor. Can you get saved that way? Are you allowed? Is Jesus allowed? And what if you would have been there and he asked your advice? What if there was this guy up a tree and this happened and he turned to you and said, hey, what do you reckon I'd do with this guy? You go, I don't know, Jesus, what do you reckon? I think I'm going to call him saved, but I'm not just going to call him saved. I'm going to call everybody in his house saved. <laughs> would you have said, um, oh, well, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me, but um, it's your world, Jesus, and you could do what you like. Or would you be the person giving all the verses as to why Jesus can't do something? <laughs> is, is, can, can I not do what I want to do with my own money? There's this one time. Um, is Jesus allowed to do what he wants? Do I still get an amen on that? Or are we questioning ourselves now? Oh, good. There's this one time. Jesus is having a particularly bad day. And he ended up nailed to a cross, right? Pretty bad day, right? I know you think your day is stressful, but eh, not, not much compared to that. Jesus finds himself nailed to a cross. It's a pretty stressful day. And, and he still finds himself thinking about other people. He's still up on the cross going, oh, forgive them. <sighs> yes, forgive them. And then there's this guy on a cross next to him that's having an equally bad day. And I don't know what you know about crucifixion, but it's very difficult to breathe. <laughs> and, and he looks at Jesus and he says, um, uh, please remember me. And what does Jesus say? Well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2013. No. What does Jesus say? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Hang on. Where did Jesus go that day? 
hell. So is heaven and hell in the same room? Um, is Jesus allowed? And what if you had been there? What, what if Jesus was hanging on the cross, this guy says, please remember me. And Jesus says, hey, what do you reckon I'd do with that? You go, I don't know, Jesus, what do you reckon? I reckon, I reckon we're going to call him in. How about that? What would, would you have said, well, Jesus, this is your world, do what you want? Or would you be the person giving him all the scriptures as to why you can't let the guy in? Because Romans 10, 9, and 10 clearly says you have to believe in heart and you confess with your mouth. Is Jesus allowed to call that guy in without, with just on a request, please remember me? Is Jesus allowed? Oh. Can, don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Can, can Jesus do what he likes? Everybody instantly says yes, but hang on, would you be okay with that? My personal favorite, there's this one time Jesus was, um, was preaching, and, and it says the house was full, and there was a paralyzed guy outside and couldn't get in, and so um, his friends took him to the roof of the house and took the roof off. Now, I was wrong about this. I used to picture like a straw roof, or, or, or like a, and they would cut a hole in it. That's actually not true. I had a history expert from Israel correct me on this. Um, he said in that region, because of the climate, they had to have stone roofs, and so to remove um, the roof of the house would have required removing an entire slab of stone. That's why it would have taken all four of them, and so they removed this entire slab of stone, and they lower the guy in. It's one of the most chaotic scenes in Jesus' whole ministry. They lower him in from the roof of the house, and it says this, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. (laughs) Is Jesus allowed? And what if you were there? What if he asked your advice? Hey, what do you reckon I do with this? I don't know, Jesus, what do you reckon? I think I'm going to forgive his sins. But Jesus, he has no faith. I know, but his friends have faith. We'll count that. Would, would you be saved today if you lived back then? Or would you have ran from Jesus? Because he's not allowed. Is Jesus allowed to do what he likes? You say, Shane, what do you do with that scripture? I don't know. But I do know this. If you're a mom and you're believing for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff somehow. A later writer said it, a later writer said it this way. The faith of a saved wife can save her unbelieving husband. Do we believe that? Was Paul allowed to write that? Would Paul be allowed to preach in churches if he said that? What do you do with that? I don't know. Somebody asked me, so Shane, are you saying you can go to heaven if you marry the right woman? My answer is this. I have no idea who goes to heaven, who goes to hell is outside my pay grade. What I do know is that if you marry the wrong one, you will live in hell today. (laughs) Like really past the far depths of it. (laughs) Is Jesus allowed? Can I not do what I want to do with my own money? We have to deal with this belief system. Any belief system in us that says God has to conform to the way we see things has to die for heaven to be established. Can Jesus not do what he wants to do? Hey, my personal favorite, there's a rich guy. Anytime a story in the Bible starts, there's a certain rich guy with no name, it ends poorly, right? He said, there's this rich guy, and I'm going to make you tell this story. There's a rich guy, and this rich guy came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember? And what does Jesus tell him? Well, Bo, you got to ask me in your heart. Everybody knows that. There's this prayer you got to pray, and you got to ask me in your heart to be your Lord and Savior. That's where eternal life comes from. Is that what Jesus says to him? No. Somebody tell me loud with confidence, what does Jesus say to the guy? 
sell, sell, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and eternal life will be yours. Is Jesus allowed to say that? Or is Jesus a heretic too? And what would happen if someone preached that? What would happen if on a big enough stage someone said, it's possible to inherit eternal life by selling what you have and giving it to the poor? What would happen to that guy? What would he be called? Heretic. There'd be websites dedicated to his honor. So how far has Christianity come from Christ that a direct quote from Christ is now heresy? Is Jesus allowed? Is someone responding to Jesus by being generous? Is that not appropriate? Is someone responding to Jesus by washing his feet with their hair? Is that not appropriate? Is someone responding to Jesus by going, please remember me? Is that not appropriate? They all respond to Jesus, but they respond to Jesus their way. See, people like to say, Jesus is the only way, Shane. Jesus is the only way. Is that true? Is that okay to say that? Yes, that's okay to say that. I'm not tricking you. People are like, I don't know. If that... Yes, of course that's okay to say that. Jesus, probably not with that face, but um, <laughs> yeah, don't say with that face. It's ugly. Don't do that. But Jesus is the only way. But there's a big difference between saying Jesus is the only way and my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. There's two big, that's two very different things. Does everybody have to get saved like you? Like, is, 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 what, what if there was a 17-year-old Mongolian kid who was taking a nature walk and that day he sees a river flowing into a stream and he looks at it and something goes off in his heart and he looks at the sky and he says, whoever made this, I can't wait to meet you one day. I think you're amazing. And anything I can do to meet you, I would love to. Because I'm assuming you're the same guy that made the stars and the trees. And I just find you fascinating. And what if that 17-year-old Mongolian kid dies early and he meets Jesus? And Jesus says, hi, I'm the way. And the Mongolian kid says, are you the guy that made the river? Yeah, that was me. You're amazing. I am so glad to meet you. Let's have dinner. Let's have some coffee. i got tons of questions to ask you. I find you fascinating. The stars, too? Yep. Trees? Yipper. That was me. Oh, great. When do we get to have coffee? This is going to be fantastic. What is Jesus' response to him? Is it, yeah, but did you pray the prayer? <laughs> prayer? What prayer? Oh, I know, I sent Baptist missionaries to your village, but unfortunately their car broke down on the way there, and you didn't, they didn't I, I know, but he didn't, did you say the, please tell me you said the prayer before you died. Oh, no, I, I didn't know, but I, I whatever, I'll do whatever you want me to do now. Oh, unfortunately, it's just too late. Now, there's this torture chamber I've built for most people, and you're, you're just going to have to go in there, because I just, I, you have to, really? 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 Is, is the Mongolian kid's response to God just as valid as yours? He's doing it with the light he's been given. Are you kidding me? Is God allowed to do what he likes? <laughs> like, what they believed in Jesus' day was one sacrifice per family per year. That's what gave you forgiveness. Jesus shows up and says one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. <laughs> How many of you were here last year when I preached a message called The Goat Has Left the Building? Yeah, okay, that, that was the one sacrifice per family per year. But, so Jesus comes in and goes, ah, no, don't worry about that. We'll just do one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. That'll do it. That'll be good. 
Would you have followed him? Or would you have ran from him? Jesus is amazing. I find Jesus so amazing. And to be a disciple of just Jesus requires us to have views of God that are bigger than what we thought. Maybe, just maybe, God is nicer than what you think. So, two questions. One, does God have the right to do what he wants to do? Can I get an amen on that? All right, so we, if we've established God can do what he likes, then our problem must be number two. Are we envious because he's generous? If we believe that God can do anything he wants. Now, if you don't believe God can do anything he wants, then, then keep working on number one. But if you believe God could do anything he wants, and you have a problem with God giving others the same wages he gives you, even though they've done less work, then the problem is, is that we are envious because he's generous. And what about, and this is where I had to stop, because I firmly believe God can do what he likes. Like, I have no trouble with God saving a Mongolian kid through a vision and a star. I have no problem with that at all. And here's why I just think God does that, number one. Number two, there's this passage in 1 Corinthians. It's either 1 or 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is telling the story of the Exodus to Corinthian people, and he says there's this one time where Moses got water out of a rock, and the rock was Jesus Christ. So is there ever a moment where Jesus can take the form of a rock in the desert? And if he could take the form of a rock in the desert, what else could he take the form of? I have no trouble with God appearing to people. I have no trouble with God working in the hearts of people. I have no trouble with him doing it outside the Bible. In some ways, I think that might be easier. I'm serious. There's no bias. There's no, you, you, you have a vision of a heavenly being. It's a bit more compelling than an intellectual argument. I, I, I have no trouble with that at all. Oh, you want to hear something cool that I experienced recently? I don't have my iPhone, but trust me, I have it on a picture. I went to the Smithsonian Institute, um, and in the Museum of Natural History, they have a mummy exhibit. And what they explained to us was that in those days in Egypt, um, that um, they believed that if, if you died, ma'am, for instance, and let's say that we were your pastors, um, that we were supposed to write what kind of life you lived on the inside of your coffin, and that, that on the other side, God would open your sarcophagus, or co- we'll just say coffin, because sarcophagus is just ridiculously long to say. So, so God would open your coffin, and he would read what your life is like and go, okay, you're all right, or okay, you're not right? And so it was based on what we wrote about you, right? And so then we were held accountable by God to being honest, because if he lets a jerk into heaven, that would just be terrible, right? This is how primitive their view of God was, right? And so, um, and, and so they have a preserved mummy's tomb there from 2200 BC from a town called Giza. And of course, they write it all on the inside of the sarcophagus. There's all this hieroglyphics about what his life was like. So they had a hieroglyphics expert translate it. And this is what it says. Now, you guys know Matthew 25, right? For when I was hungry, you get, yeah, okay, right? This is what it said. I said it, this is, by the way, 2200 BC, this is before the Torah. This is before Abraham or any of them came to Egypt. This is before all that. This is what it said. I said and repeated good things. I said what was just, I did what was just. I gave food to the hungry and clothing to the naked, and I sought to restore dignity to all those who don't have it. I was kind to my mother and respectful to my father. I did not speak with a malicious tone to anyone because I desired to be a person of good character so that I would be noticed by the one true God and by people forever. (laughs) What? (laughs) Where did he get that? Oh, 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 wait, there's more. Check this out. It's not on wheels. 
When I ran over there, do I run like a girl? Be honest. Be, yes, be, be, be the feedback in my life. Do, do, I, do I run like a girl? Okay. Um, I, I said and repeated good things. I said what was just. I did what was just. I gave food to the hungry, clothing to the naked. I restored dignity to the broken. I was kind to my mother. I was respectful to my father. I never said anything with malice intent towards anyone because I desired to be a person of good character so that I would be noticed by the one true God and by people forever. How did ancient Egyptians write? Hieroglyphics. Do you know what the picture to say and repeat good things is in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics? Here, I draw a little bigger. It's a head under a cross. Uh-huh. It, it means to say and repeat good things. So, so I asked the hieroglyphics person, I said, what is this? He said, oh, the symbol to say and repeat good things is to submit your thinking to a higher authority of the cross. <laughs> that was before the Roman Empire. There was no cross. Where did he get that? Where did they get that? So, so I asked the guy there, I said, where did they get this? There's no Roman Empire. He said, um, maybe God meant what he said when he said he was writing his ways on the hearts of men. <laughs> maybe God doesn't need your help. <laughs> so in 2200 BC, there's this guy that died, and on the inside of his coffin, he had written that he submitted his thinking to the authority of the cross. Does anybody want to make a case that he's burning in hell today? <laughs> Is God allowed? Maybe God's been at work in the hearts of people for a long, long time. Can God do what he likes? Yes! I had no problem with God doing what he liked. So if I have a problem with God giving the same pay to people who's done less work, my problem must be number two. Are you envious because I'm generous? What about the generosity of God threatens me? I always find it amazing when I talk to groups of Christians who convince they're in. So I've got a group of people. All of you would think you're in, right? Like when you die, you're going to heaven, correct? Everybody would think they're in? Okay, good. So I agree. I'm with you. Amen, right? So, but I'm always um, intrigued when I preach in front of a group of people who all think they're in, that if I make God nicer than they think, they're threatened by that. If you already think you're in and I make God nicer than you thought, does that not just further solidify your inness? Why would you be mad about that? There must be something in you that doesn't like the thought that God's going to treat other people just as nice as he's treating you because something thinks that something inside of you thinks you deserve it more. Are you envious because God's generous? See, there's two flip sides to this. Heaven is beautiful, and here's why. Here's one of the things about heaven that is so beautiful. Heaven delivers me from the notion that I have to outdo Mother Teresa to make it. Right? You get an amen on that? Like, heaven, the, the environment Jesus describes of heaven is, it frees me from the notion that I have to outdo Mother Teresa to make it. But it also forces me to give grace to people who haven't done as much as me. 
If you get your worth by looking left and right, you're going to always find that there's someone who's done more than you and that there's someone who's done less than you. Jesus says that, that, that's not heaven. In heaven, heaven is an environment where everybody realizes they're not worthy and they get all their worth from the one in the center. <laughs> and I realized I, 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 this part of heaven is not established in my heart. I still was on a hierarchy. So, are you envious because God's generous? 